This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, or so the saying goes. We take this to mean that when the female of the species is hurt or betrayed, they are prone to lash out in ways that might not be very pleasant. While that might be an unfair generalization, there are instances in true crime where it has happened. In this series, I will share stories of women who, for different reasons, decided to take matters into their own hands, sometimes with deadly results. The title of this series is simply A Woman Scorned. This is Chapter 1, Betty Broderick. Elizabeth Ann Broderick was born November 7, 1947, and was the third of six children born to Marita and Frank Biseglia. The Biseglias were devout Catholics who worked hard and aspired to give their children a good life in Eastchester, New York. Elizabeth, known as Betty by her friends and family, was expected to focus on her education. After graduating high school, she attended the College of Mount St. Vincent, a small Catholic private university not far from her home, earning a teaching credential. But Betty was not expected to continue on to a career. No, even Betty herself didn't have that goal in mind. Her goal, and her parents' goal for her, typical of that time, was to find a good man to marry. Betty was raised to be a wife and mother, and she had a specific man in mind for a mate. He should be handsome, of course. Betty herself was a thin, blonde beauty. He should also be a college man who aspired to become a professional, like a doctor, lawyer, or businessman. It was preferable that he be Catholic as well. In 1965, when Betty was 17 years old, she was given permission by her parents to travel to Indiana with friends to attend a Notre Dame USC football game. It was there that she met Daniel Thomas Broderick III. Dan was attending Notre Dame as a pre-med student. He was from Pittsburgh, and the Brodericks were a large Irish Catholic family. Dan, like Betty, was raised to value home and family above all, but he also aspired towards the finer things in life and was willing to work hard to have a successful career to provide his family with all the things money could buy. He had applied and been accepted to medical school at Cornell University in New York. Now having met Betty, he could see the future in front of him, to be a successful doctor, to be married to a beautiful wife, and eventually have children and a beautiful home as well. Dan pursued Betty, who was thrilled by his attention. Betty's family was decidedly middle class, and when Dan took her to meet his family in Pittsburgh, she could envision their life as well, living in a beautiful home, being a doctor's wife, and hobnobbing in upper-class society circles. These were all the things her parents had dreamed of for her. Dan wasn't the tallest or the most athletic boy she had dated, and his look could be described as studious. But Betty knew with hard work, they could both have all the things they dreamed of. They began dating long distance for a few months, but more seriously after Dan began his studies at Cornell. Betty would later state that Dan was the most attentive and romantic man she ever knew. He wanted to be with her all the time and doted on his beautiful girlfriend. She had charm and grace and a sense of style. Dan was smart, funny, and charismatic. Everyone saw them as a golden couple, perfectly matched. Dan and Betty became engaged. They looked forward to starting their life together. Dan wanted to marry right away, but Betty, still a teen, wanted to hold off a bit longer until she finished college. They finally married on April 12, 
1969, in a big church wedding attended by family and friends. They honeymooned in the Caribbean. It wasn't long after they returned from their trip that Betty discovered she was pregnant. They were living in Dan's student housing dorm while he continued working towards his medical degree. They were mostly broke. Dan's parents expected their children to work and earn their own way, and that is what Dan was doing. Although being in medical school, he couldn't earn much to support his wife, and now his impending child. Betty used her teaching credential and worked as a teacher to bring in a paycheck. During the school breaks, she worked various part-time jobs. Their first child, Kimberly, was born in 1970. One year later, their second daughter, Lee, was born. When Dan decided after he'd finished his medical degree that he wanted to attend law school instead of becoming a doctor, Betty agreed. While she knew it would take more sacrifice and they would continue to live on a tight budget, she believed Dan when he said with both a medical and a law degree, he could specialize in medical malpractice law and be in high demand at top law firms. Dan entered Harvard Law School while Betty continued to work to support the family, sometimes even selling Tupperware door-to-door. Dan finally graduated with his law degree in 1974. He and Betty decided to move to San Diego, California. He had worked as a law clerk in Los Angeles one summer, and he and Betty had fallen in love with San Diego's beautiful weather, the seashore, and the affluent feel of the area and felt it would provide good opportunities for a young attorney. They first rented a small two-bedroom bungalow in Claremont. Dan took a job at the prestigious law firm Gray, Carey, Ames, and Fry. The pay at first was not great, and Betty continued to work to help make ends meet. She worked as a hostess at both the Jolly Roger and Black Angus restaurants. She went to work in the evenings after Dan came home, and he took over the care of the children. But Dan was soon too busy preparing cases for trial, and they hired a sitter to help with the children. One evening, when the children had been put to bed by the sitter, faulty wiring from a new television set in the living room started a fire. The girls woke to find the living room in flames, and the sitter quickly rushed them outside. No one was hurt, but the house was burned to the ground. All of their possessions were also gone. They moved to a small apartment, while Dan worked with the insurance company to pay them for the fire and their lost possessions. It took several months, and nerves began to fray in the tiny apartment. But in the fall of 1975, with insurance money in hand, Dan and Betty purchased their first house, located on Coral Reef Avenue in La Jolla. It was a nice family neighborhood in an upper-middle-class section of town. Betty set about furnishing and decorating the home and caring for the children, while Dan worked on building a successful legal career. He would often put in 15-hour days. Betty began an in-home daycare at the Coral Reef house to help pay the mortgage. Soon after they moved into the new house, Betty persuaded her husband to join her in a marriage encounter weekend. These retreats were popular in the 1970s. Spouses would attend to work out differences and get closer as a couple. There was a definite strain in the marriage, with Betty left alone long hours with the children, while Dan worked at the office. Even when he was home, he was preoccupied with work that needed to be completed before court. While at the marriage encounter, they both wrote letters detailing their shortcomings as a spouse and what they wanted to improve. Dan's letter stated that he knew he was a workaholic, but he had certain financial goals he needed to achieve before he could relax. He knew he wasn't the kind of husband and father he should be, he said. But once he was providing a good living for his family, he would be able to improve in this area. Betty wrote about needing more of her husband's attention. She was lonely in the marriage and wanted more of his time. 
She missed the way he used to dote on her when they were dating and engaged. She would say that she felt that all of that ended the minute they married. They both came away with the idea that even though neither was content in the marriage, nothing was going to change very soon. The following year, the couple had their first son, Daniel Broderick IV. Betty had put all of her eggs in the basket of becoming the wife of Dan Broderick Esquire and mother to his children. Now she found it wasn't as fulfilling as she thought it was going to be. She was now saddled with two preschoolers and an infant. Kim, her oldest daughter, remembers that she was a wonderful mother, very energetic and dedicated to her home and her family. But while Betty was tethered to the house, not only with her own children, but with the daycare business, Dan was becoming more successful and popular in his field and was away from the home more and more. Socializing was part of the legal business, he would explain. There were business lunches as well as drinks and dining after work with colleagues and clients. Betty became resentful of her husband's freedom and time spent away from her and the kids. She felt rightfully that she'd worked just as hard to help him become a success and now he alone was enjoying all the rewards. Even more than that, Dan Broderick had an identity and a reputation outside of her, but Betty's whole identity was wrapped up in being his wife and the children's mother. Not that she didn't like that. That was all she'd ever wanted. But she also wanted her husband's attention and maybe to be seen and given credit for all she had done. Increasingly, she felt her husband was leaving her behind and didn't view her as important or special anymore. Perhaps the biggest mistake Betty Broderick made was expecting her husband alone to make her special, important, and fulfilled. By 1978, the Brodericks were doing very well financially. Dan was making over six figures a year as one of his firm's top performers. He was achieving some fame as well, representing clients that would put him in the news. He represented one of the families of the children, shot by 16-year-old school shooter Brenda Spencer, after one of the first school shootings in the United States. I shared that case way back in episode 8. As a result of his success, Betty no longer had to work outside of the home. The girls began attending an exclusive private school, and Betty had decorated their home with beautiful furnishings. She'd always had good taste and an eye for the best money could buy. They'd even had a swimming pool added to the backyard. It was at this time that Dan Broderick decided to leave Gray Carey to begin his own law firm. Betty encouraged him in this endeavor, and Dan sought out her help to get things in place for the new office. For the first time in his career, Betty felt needed by her husband. She helped him to find and secure the perfect location for his new office, and then undertook furnishing and decorating it from the ground up. Betty's taste was impeccable, and by the time she had finished picking out leather sofas and chairs, rare wood conference tables, custom-made window coverings and artwork to adorn the walls, the office stood out as an impressive and respected law firm. Clients began to pay top dollar to be represented by Dan Broderick. But once her job as decorator was done, life went back to normal. Betty had been thrilled to be part of Dan's world and to receive compliments about the beautiful office she'd helped put together. Now she felt discarded again while Dan began working even longer hours. Betty was once again, and for the last time, pregnant. She gave birth to their fourth child and second son, Rhett, in 1979. By now, Betty had been complaining and nagging her husband about his lack of time spent with her and the family for years. Their fights began to escalate, and the children would later vividly recall these tense times. Kim would recall her mother working herself into a frenzy 
as she was preparing dinner. She'd often talk out loud to herself or whoever might be in earshot about all her husband's shortcomings. She would be angry, knowing that he would be home late after the dinner she'd prepared was already cold. By the time he would arrive, she would be furious. Kim remembers many, many instances of her mother and father screaming at each other and that her mother would often throw things at him. She would pick up and hurl whatever was in reach, including plates, cups, and once an almost full bottle of ketchup that shattered just over Dan's head. Often, Dan would react by not reacting at all. During the ketchup-throwing incident, he seemed to ignore it, sitting down afterwards to finish his meal as if nothing had happened. There were times, however, that Dan also lost his temper. Kim recalls him throwing bigger items, but not at Betty. He would seem to destroy things out of frustration without targeting anyone. Sometimes stereos and televisions, and once he threw an entire fish tank over a balcony. Kim remembers throughout her whole childhood thinking that if her mother wasn't so angry all the time, yelling and complaining and throwing things, that maybe her father might come home more often. While Betty wanted more of her husband's attention, out of frustration and a lack of coping skills to deal with her disappointment and anger, she was pushing him further away. Betty's behavior became increasingly immature as her frustration grew. The children were subjected to her angry tirades. With her husband absent, she would vent nonstop to her children. As they began getting used to their mother's outbursts, children tend to adapt and normalize chaos in the home in order to cope. Betty added another stressor to their lives. Periodically, she would sit the children down and tell them that she and their father were getting divorced. She then asked them to tell her which parent they wanted to live with. Of course, the children would become upset and scared and wouldn't know how to answer. Then their father would come home and calm them down, telling them that he wasn't leaving and they weren't getting a divorce, and telling them not to worry. This went on for years, reports Kim. In an interview with the San Diego Reader in 1988, Dan stated that after two weeks of marriage, Betty began threatening divorce. He said he was stunned, and she wouldn't tell him what he did wrong. If you don't know what I'm upset about, she reportedly said, then you've got a real problem. He said there were requests and demands from Betty for a divorce literally hundreds of times over the course of their marriage. He stopped taking them seriously. While there was fighting, arguing, and chaos inside the Broderick household, in public, Dan and Betty still played the role of the golden couple. Dan had come into his own and now cut a dashing figure in his expensive suits and silk ties. He was charming, funny, and the life of the party. Betty was always impeccably dressed, and her bubbly personality and quick wit drew people to her. They attended all the important social functions together, and their pictures were often printed in society columns. No one could guess how far from the truth this picture was. The kids as well were having problems. The constant fighting between their parents took a toll on them as well, naturally. Kim and Lee, the two oldest and closest in age, fought and argued with each other constantly. They, of course, learned this behavior from their parents, and the stress in the home didn't help. Kim reports that, while close in some ways, in other ways the sisters were sworn enemies who, at times, hated each other. Their arguments sometimes descended into knock-down, drag-out physical altercations. As the boys grew older, they would often join in the fray, and all four children would battle each other ruthlessly, while alternately trying to stay out of the line of fire between Dan and Betty. Betty began to spend money like it was going out of style. It was possibly a way for her to either punish her husband for his inattention, or fill the void in her life, or both. 
Either way, she spared no expense for the home, herself, or the children. She would only purchase the highest quality and most expensive items, even when Dan told her that her spending was out of control and beyond their budget. She purchased luxury items for herself, including designer gowns, jewelry, and shoes. She also spared no expense to try and hold on to her youth and beauty as the years progressed. She had begun dyeing her hair platinum blonde and frequently visited her pricey hairdresser for touch-ups. Her expensive wardrobe flattered her slim figure, and when she began to gain a few pounds, she would panic and worry that she was losing her looks. She was increasingly insecure about her looks and her weight and worried that Dan would no longer find her attractive. Dan was always the person in charge of their finances. Betty was never even sure how much money he made or how much was in their accounts. She never worried about those details and let Dan take the lead in handling the money. Dan, who always had financial goals and now was a millionaire, also measured success by his bank balance. Both Dan and Betty's main concern during this time seemed to be the accumulation of wealth and possessions. Dan and Betty took a two-week European vacation with another couple. When they were in the public eye, Dan and Betty could get along without problems. This was possibly because Dan was spending time with Betty and she was receiving the attention she always craved. It was also, perhaps, because both of them had been raised to believe that appearances were extremely important and they knew how to play their roles perfectly when others were watching. Once they were back home, the fights continued and even escalated. The children reported later that this was just normal life to them. In the fall of 1981, Dan's law practice was so successful that he moved his office to a prestigious downtown address. His offices were located on an upper floor of a high-rise building with panoramic views of the San Diego Bay and skyline. Betty was given the task of furnishing it, and this time decorated it even more opulently than the first time. Afterwards, she began redecorating their home, making sure that it was even more expensively and tastefully decorated than Dan's office. She reveled in the compliments she received for both projects. Betty, however, was not thrilled when Dan purchased his dream car, a burgundy two-seat Jaguar sports car. This was not a family car, Betty would complain. She herself drove a fully loaded Chevy Suburban, that she shuttled the kids around in. The car was well-known in the neighborhood, sporting a vanity plate that read, Load em up. Betty began criticizing and taunting Dan at every opportunity that he was going through a midlife crisis. Kim writes about this time in her family's life. If mom could stop spending so much money, stop complaining, and just leave dad alone, maybe he'd want to come home and be with us. On the other hand, if dad would stop spending so much time with his friends drinking, and come home after work and be with us, maybe mom would stop complaining and be kind. It seems it was a no-win situation, and the kids were the biggest losers in the whole mess. Betty took to locking Dan out of the house when he came home late. The kids were stuck in the middle when he would throw pebbles at their windows to alert them to let him in. They knew that if they did, their mother would be furious, but how could they leave their father locked out? It was a terrible position to put their children in. Betty continued to yell, complain, and berate her husband. She often threatened divorce, sometimes putting Dan's clothes in a suitcase and dropping it on the porch for him to find. Dan's response became to ignore his wife's histrionics. After years of constant criticism and nagging by Betty, he just stopped fighting with her. He would ignore her, stay silent, and pretend like nothing had happened. That she was now getting no response from her husband made Betty even more angry. In 1982, 
the family went on a week-long vacation to a dude ranch in Montana. Betty and the kids arrived first and had a great time horseback riding and swimming. Dan arrived a bit later, and at first, they enjoyed their vacation as a family. Soon, however, Dan and Betty had a big fight, and Dan decided to go back to San Diego on his own. Betty tried to call him repeatedly, but he did not answer her calls. Betty drove the kids home alone soon after, and she became angrier the closer they approached their home. When they arrived, she lit into Dan about being an irresponsible parent, a terrible husband, and a selfish human being, a laundry list of his faults that he'd been hearing for years. But this time, something snapped. Without a word, Dan packed a bag and left. Betty was stunned, as were the children. While Dan checked into a hotel near the beach, Betty, left alone with her children, began recounting to them what would become a familiar refrain. She would go on long diatribes, putting down their father and explaining that it was her sacrifices that had made Dan successful. Without her, she would say, he would have nothing. They would get used to being dragged into their parents' problems by their mother. She would share private information with her children about their father and her marriage that they were too young to be burdened with. After their father left, Betty began to turn on the children as well. She was angry that he was now on his own and free to do whatever he wanted whenever he pleased, while she was stuck with the four of them. She would tell them that he couldn't handle the burden of caring for four children, and she threatened to dump them off with him so he could see how difficult it was. The children had to listen to their mother's complaints and angry tirades and were not allowed to speak their own mind or defend themselves or their father. They knew if they did, there would be hell to pay. Betty could turn on her children with the anger that she used to reserve for her husband. She would call them idiots if they disagreed with her, or worse. As much as she badmouthed her husband, Betty wanted him back. She knew trying to persuade him to come home for her sake would not work. Instead, she told him that the children were despondent without him. After two weeks, he returned. While he was gone, however, the children had been able to spend some time alone with their father, going out for a meal with him or talking with him on the phone. This was the first time in a long time that they had a stress-free experience with a parent, and they realized that the life they were living with their battling parents was not normal. Remembering this time, Kim would write, From my viewpoint, dad without mom equaled peace and normalcy, while mom without dad had disaster written all over it. A new stress came into play in the life of the Brodericks in 1983. After all the years of Betty accusing Dan of going through a midlife crisis, she was now convinced he was also having an affair. Dan had hired a 21-year-old as his secretary and then quickly promoted her to his legal assistant. She had no education or training for this position. Betty had nagged Dan for some time to hire more help in his office. But when she saw Linda Colkenna, the young pretty assistant he'd hired, she hit the roof. It became even worse when she heard Dan describe Linda as beautiful at an office party. At first, as was his way, Dan ignored Betty's allegations. When he did respond, it was only to vehemently deny that he was cheating on her. Finally, after months of Betty's accusations, he started to respond by telling Betty that she was losing it or imagining things. He would begin to tell her she was crazy and needed mental help. While Betty's behavior throughout the marriage may have been childish and petty, it is almost certain that when she came to believe her husband was having an affair, he actually was. Even if it was at first just a flirtation, 
Betty saw the signs. When Dan began ignoring, denying, and then deflecting her accusations by telling her she was imagining things, he was using a tactic called gaslighting. Gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse where one person tries to make another doubt their own thoughts, memories, or actions. Betty was most certainly subjected to gaslighting by her husband. If she was already feeling out of control and off balance, it would only seek to exacerbate her frustration and rage. In late 1983, Betty decided to surprise Dan at his office on his 39th birthday. She arrived with a gift and a bottle of champagne and planned to take him for a special lunch. But when she arrived, he was not in. She was told that he had left for lunch with his assistant, Linda. Betty waited for him to return, growing more angry as time ticked away. He never returned. Betty went home and grabbed handfuls of Dan's clothing and belongings and threw them over the bedroom balcony onto the lawn. She retrieved a can of gasoline from the garage and doused the pile, striking a match and lighting them on fire in the front yard. While the children watched in horror, Betty's anger had not yet dissipated. She returned to the garage, this time carrying out a can of paint, which she then poured over what was left of the burnt pile. Without another word, she went back into the house. Fire trucks soon arrived, alerted by the neighbors. The fire was out by then, and they quickly left. Kim says she felt humiliated. Now everyone would know how crazy her family really was. When Dan arrived home, the couple went upstairs to the room and didn't emerge for hours. The children remained waiting downstairs on pins and needles. Their father finally came downstairs to tell them that everything was fine and not to worry and sent them to bed. In the morning, Dan and Betty acted like nothing out of the ordinary had occurred the night before. Nothing changed except that Betty began to redouble her efforts to be more attractive to her husband. Kim says, trying her best to win his affection through her looks and exterior attractiveness, she never recognized the need to work on her personality or her behavior. If anything, those traits were the ones Dad would have loved overhauled, but instead they would become even worse as time went on. Perhaps because of what ultimately happened, for years, no one would comment much on Dan's behavior during this time. Later, a few details would emerge. While some at the time would say that Dan didn't begin a relationship until after he and Betty separated for good, others would admit they knew an affair had begun sometime before. Not much would be said about Linda's part in the breakup of Dan Broderick's marriage. While it's certainly true that the marriage had been on the rocks long before Linda Colkenna made her appearance in Dan Broderick's life, she would certainly turn out to be a factor in his exit from the marriage. Some would later say that Linda was pushing for Dan to leave Betty for her, and Dan would waffle back and forth between his wife and his girlfriend. Dan had been raised in a traditional Catholic home, and divorce was taboo. We'll see signs that he continued to try and stay with his wife, but ultimately, as time went on, he would choose Linda over Betty. In early 1984, the family was forced to move out of their house on Coral Reef Avenue due to a flaw in the foundation. Betty used this circumstance to begin looking for a larger home closer to the coast. They rented a home in the pricey La Jolla Shores area while the construction was ongoing. Betty continued to harangue Dan about the girl at the office. She insisted he fire her and hire someone qualified for the job, and he continued to insist that his infidelity was all in her imagination but friends of the family and neighbors began to talk about all the places they'd seen Dan and Linda together. They would sometimes call Betty with the latest sightings of the couple. 
Betty discussed Dan's infidelity with her children, filling them in on all the gossip and calling his assistant ever more colorful names. All of this, of course, was inappropriate to share with her children. Dan continued to make excuses to Betty about why he was often seen in the company of his young assistant outside of the office. Other than their mother using them as a sounding board, the children were often ignored. Left to their own devices, or housekeepers and babysitters, they began to spin out of control. They were doing poorly in school, getting in trouble, and the older girls began to indulge in drugs and alcohol. In one of the instances that I alluded to earlier, where Dan seemed to be trying to honor his wedding vows, except perhaps the forsaking all others part, he took Betty on another European vacation. Maybe he believed he could recreate their last happy time together in Europe. It would turn out to be one of their most romantic times together, and again, traveling with another couple, they spent three weeks seemingly in wedded bliss and enjoying their time together thoroughly. But on the flight home, Betty could not help taking a shot at her husband by asking him if his midlife crisis was over. With that, their happy couple time was over. The daily fights over Linda and his time away from the home continued. Still, they stayed together. In early November, Betty began planning the elaborate birthday and holiday activities she always prepared for the family. Both Betty and Dan had birthdays in November. In early November, when her birthday rolled around, she made a gourmet meal and a cake for the family to share. Dan didn't show up for the party, and Betty was devastated. She made a half-hearted attempt at suicide, taking some pills and cutting small wounds into her wrists. When Dan arrived, he bandaged her wounds and apologized for being late. It may have been a cry for attention, but it showed how desperate Betty was becoming. Before Christmas, Betty had begun hinting to Dan that she wanted him to buy her a big emerald ring for Christmas. She hinted at it so much that it seems this was a symbol she needed to prove that her husband still cared about her. On Christmas Day, he presented her with a velvet ring box. As soon as she opened it and looked inside, she flew into a rage. He had bought her a ring, but it wasn't the one she wanted. It wasn't big enough or expensive enough, she complained, and she threw a major temper tantrum that shocked everyone. Dan at first tried to calm her down, but when she would not be appeased, he decided to once again ignore her outrageous behavior. Christmas was ruined. In the spring of 1985, a minor incident in comparison finally ended the marriage. Betty, as she had many times, began demanding that Dan admit his affair. When he would not, she threw hair gel on him. That was the final straw for Dan Broderick. He told her he couldn't take it any longer, and he moved back into the Coral Reef house that was still under construction. Even with all the years of fights, arguments, criticisms, complaints, and allegations of her husband's infidelity, Betty seemed shocked and blindsided when he finally left. Kim said she felt some relief that now, maybe, they wouldn't be subjected to the constant fights and tension between her parents. But it was not to be. Betty never stopped her tirades against their father and began to grow angrier at each passing day. Dan filed for legal separation and then finally admitted to having a relationship with Linda Colkenna. Betty's anger turned to hate. At first, however, Betty tried to convince herself that it would all work out, and Dan would return. She took the children on their usual spring break vacation and even allowed them to bring some friends along. The children, now 15, 14, 8, and 5, enjoyed the time away at first, but Betty started to act more tense as the week progressed. By the drive home, 
the children began to recognize the warning signs of an imminent blow-up. They returned home on Easter Sunday. Their friends were still with them, and as the sun began to set, Kim asked Betty if she could drive her friend home, since school was resuming the next day. Betty blew up at her. She told her she wasn't going to take her inconsiderate and selfish behavior one more minute and told her to pack her bags. She compared Kim to her father and said they deserved each other. Betty drove her to the Coral Reef house and told her to take her bags and get out of the car. She then drove away. Betty didn't even wait long enough to find out if Dan was home, which he was not. Crying now, Kim sat on the front porch waiting for her father to arrive. A few hours later, he returned home shocked to see his daughter dumped on his porch. He welcomed her inside, and even though there was no bed in her room, Kim felt much more comfortable being with her father now. The next day, Dan took Kim out for pizza after he returned from work. Betty still had not called him or her daughter. When they returned home, they found eight-year-old Daniel sitting on the dark porch crying. He said his mother had dropped him off after she had become angry at him for fighting with his younger brother. After that, Betty soon found other reasons to drop off her remaining children with Dan. It was an adjustment at first. Dan had never had full responsibility of his children before, but they quickly adapted to the new living situation. If Betty's motive was to make Dan suffer by burdening him with the children, as she'd once threatened, and prevent him from enjoying his freedom, her tactic backfired. They soon fell into a routine, and the children enjoyed living with their dad. Dan hired a housekeeper to help with cooking and cleaning, and a nanny to watch the children while he was at work. They still saw their mother as she continued to drive them to and from their activities. She began using this excuse to constantly show up at Dan's house, however, which he did not appreciate. She would yell at him, saying it was her house, and she'd come and go as she damn well pleased. She put the children in the middle again by showing up when he was not home to snoop through his things. When they asked her not to, she called them spineless little suck-ups. Betty's anger and hate against Dan continued unchecked. Where before the children had never heard their mother curse, she now did so frequently when talking about Dan. Betty moved out of the rental house and into a new house nearby. Dan had purchased the house for Betty, and she immediately began plans for a complete renovation. Betty continued to believe that Dan would someday return, and they would all be a family again. The children were equally convinced that it would never happen. Dan refused to pay the costs for the architect Betty had hired to draw up the new house plans. Betty then enlisted her children to persuade their father to her side. She arrived at Dan's house and began to tell them that once the house was done, they would all be living in a beautiful house on the beach that would have room for all of their friends to come and stay any time they wished. She went on and on, trying to sway them to her side. Suddenly, she noticed an obviously homemade pie on the kitchen table. When she asked them who brought the pie, one of the younger boys said innocently, Linda made it for Dad. It's Boston cream. You remember, Mom. It's his favorite. Betty walked over and picked up the pie. She then headed upstairs to Dan's bedroom. She began scooping out the chocolate filling and flinging it all over the room, rubbing the sticky mess onto the bed, as well as on his suits and ties in the closet. All the while, she was calling Linda obscene and vulgar names within earshot of the kids. When she was done making a royal mess, she left. When Dan arrived home and found out what Betty had done, he was furious. Her behavior had been outrageous before, he'd say, but this time she had no right. They were separated, and she was not entitled to destroy his property. He called the police. 
They told him that there was nothing they could do. It was considered a nonviolent domestic dispute. This would happen several times, and sometimes the police would talk to Betty and tell her to stop harassing her husband. But there were no other consequences. As her harassment continued, Dan finally filed for divorce on September 23, 1985. When Betty found out that Dan had filed for divorce and changed the locks after 16 years of marriage, she lost all control. She arrived at his house and threw a patio umbrella through a glass in the back door, unlocking it and letting herself in. She went on a rampage and tore apart every room in the house, throwing furniture, ripping up pictures, shredding curtains, and even spray-painting the walls. She began to break into the house regularly and destroy things and leave obscene messages written on the mirrors. The children often arrived home before their father to witness the destruction. Betty sought to get custody of the children, but after the court heard about Betty's dumping off the kids on Dan's doorstep and her vandalism of the home they now lived in, it was decided that the children should remain with their father. Betty began to accuse Dan of manipulating the courts against her by using his power and influence as an attorney. She would say that his buddies in the legal system, including judges and attorneys, were all in league against her and siding with him. While it's possible that he might have had some advantage due to his contacts in San Diego, it's more likely that her well-documented harassment played a bigger part in her losing custody of the kids. Dan still continued to try and appease Betty. He was afraid she would give him even more grief if he said no, so he allowed the children to stay at her home sometimes. However, he would control the times and days, and he followed the schedule strictly. Dan had been asking Betty to sign papers to sell the Coral Reef house, but she would not agree to the listing price or sign the necessary documents. Dan took matters into his own hands and used a legal loophole to sell the house without her consent. He then purchased a home in the elite neighborhood of Marston Hills, about 10 miles south of La Jolla. This, of course, made Betty even more furious. She was losing complete control of her life, she told friends. First, her husband left her. Then he took the kids. Then he filed for divorce. And now he'd taken her house. If the Brodericks hadn't been front-page news before, the next thing Betty would do would certainly make them newsworthy. One evening when Dan and the girls were preparing dinner, they felt the house shake violently and heard a loud crash. Kim would say it sounded and felt like an airplane had crashed into their home. Dan ran to the front of the house and saw that Betty had drove into the front door with her Suburban and then backed up and rammed it again. The front of the house was destroyed. Dan yelled for someone to call the police as he ran outside. Kim remembers watching as Betty got out of the car and brandishing a large butcher knife lunged at Dan. All the while, she was cursing at him about selling the house. Dan wrestled her to the ground and got the knife away. The police arrived and Betty, still fighting, was placed in a straitjacket and taken away. She was sent to the hospital on a 72-hour psychiatric hold. Later, Betty would say about this incident and her anger towards Dan at that time, I am madder than hell, and I want to kill him for being lied to and cheated, but that has nothing to do with being crazy. Anyone who wasn't mad would be crazy. It was later discovered that Betty had also tried to set the coral reef house on fire, pouring gasoline on the front porch and lighting a fire, but it only did a little damage to the porch and front stairs. Dan and Betty's divorce proceedings were so acrimonious that they became a newsworthy item. Their court wrangling played out in the San Diego newspapers. Betty would hire attorneys and fire them. All the while, she said she was at a disadvantage since Dan was friends with most of the attorneys in or around San Diego. 
However, whenever she did hire an attorney, she would either fire them before they could begin working for her, or the attorney would quit because she refused to follow any advice. She tried to drag out the divorce proceedings in many ways. The day of the final court hearing, Betty had no lawyer representing her, and she decided if she didn't show up, they would have to postpone the final divorce judgment. She was wrong. The judge finalized the Broderick's divorce on July 16, 1986, without Betty present. Betty received her portion of the house proceeds, and things were calm for a time. But it seems Betty would begin spinning out of control again whenever she started thinking about her ex-husband. She began breaking into the house and vandalizing it again and again. Nothing, not even the threat of jail, would stop her. Dan implemented a series of fines to try and motivate Betty to change her behavior. He would deduct from her monthly support payment $200 for each obscene word she used against him. She would leave answering machine messages on his phone, repeatedly using foul language against him and Linda. $500 for every time she entered his home without permission, and $1,000 for each time she took the children without informing him first. In 1986, Nan and Linda took a vacation to Europe for two weeks, and when he returned, he fined Betty a total of $5,000 for several trespassing incidents, as well as offensive messages she left while he was gone. After paying her November house payment and deducting the fine, Dan determined that her allowance for November was a negative balance. She arrived at his house again to harass him about this treatment, and once again, he had her arrested. Over the next two years, Betty was charged by the court several times with harassment and contempt of court, as she had been forbidden by the judge to harass her ex-husband anymore. In May of 1987, she was sentenced to almost a month in jail, but was released after a week. This didn't even slow her down, and her behavior continued. In January of 1988, she was fined $8,000 by the judge and warned if she violated the court order again, he would make her pay $16,000 for Dan's attorney fees as well. She still continued to leave obscene messages on the answering machine, which Dan played for the court in May of 1988. In a message to her daughter, she called Dan a fucking insane asshole and said he was probably off having another, quote, drunken afternoon with the office C-word. Except Betty actually said the word. She would be recorded telling her 11-year-old son, I'm too embarrassed to tell anybody I even know you guys. When he asked her why, she answered, because daddy's effing his office C-word, and it's very embarrassing. But she said the F-word and the C-word. Her son was mortified. Betty would tell anyone who would listen that Dan had robbed her of everything and made her live on no money. In actuality, he had purchased her a home, was paying her over $16,000 per month as ordered by the court, and was still paying for other expenses for her and the children as well. Nevertheless, Betty would often spend herself into a hole, going way over her budget. In a five-month period in 1988, she listed expenses of over $11,000 for home improvements, $6,000 for travel, and $31,000 for her clothing and accessories. The children's expenses were listed separately at $11,000. Betty had wanted $25,000 per month in support. She would explain that she was accustomed to wearing $2,000 outfits. Even with all her outrageous behavior, Dan still allowed the children to spend time at their mother's house. He would say he didn't want to take the children away from their mother, and the boys especially often asked to see her. Although she had lashed out violently at him on several occasions, he never believed she would harm her children. 
Betty, even three years after their separation, and almost as long since their divorce, still held hatred for Dan and now Linda. She would often tell the children that she was going to kill him. They heard it so often, they didn't even react to it anymore. She sometimes would elaborate, saying that she was going to shoot him in the head. In early 1989, Betty bought a gun. By 1989, Betty was living in her beachfront home in La Jolla that had been paid for by Dan, was receiving $16,000 a month in support, and had her two young sons living with her more than half of the time. She also had a long-term boyfriend, Brad Wright, who stayed with her on many nights. But she was still obsessed by her mistreatment by Dan Broderick. She continued to try and battle him in court for more money and custody of the boys. Many of her friends stopped seeing her, as the only subject she wanted to talk about was her rage at her ex-husband. She seemed unable to control her actions. In the fall of 1988, Dan and Linda got engaged. Their wedding was planned for April of 1989. Betty's rage now boiled over at the thought of being replaced by Linda. There was some weight to this reaction by Betty. In pictures, Linda looks very much like a younger version of Betty. Betty even went so far as to break into Dan's house to steal their wedding guest list. She then began calling all the people on the list who had been friends with both her and Dan and berating them for considering attending the upcoming wedding. Dan, in response, took her to court again for breaking into his home and stealing the list. The judge ordered Betty to return the list, and until she did, he suspended her spousal support. Within hours, it was returned. On April 22, 1989, Daniel Broderick, age 44, married Linda Colkenna, age 28. A friend of Betty stayed with her the entire day to make sure that Betty didn't try and disrupt the ceremony. While she complained about being babysat, she stayed away. Their wedding took place just 10 days after what would have been Dan and Betty's 20th anniversary. Rather than moving on with her life, Betty continued to harass Dan and Linda with awful phone messages. The boys were often in the middle. They thought if they stayed with their mother more often, she wouldn't bother their dad as much. But Dan often required Betty's behavior to improve before he allowed the boys to stay with her for extended periods. It was a catch-22 situation, with the boys used as pawns in the whole crazy game. Betty was also becoming more and more depressed, according to her friends. She had gained over 60 pounds, the first time in her life that she let her appearance go. Many friends of Dan and Betty were divided. Some believed that Betty was the victim. Her husband had cheated on her and left her for the other woman, and that had made her lash out. But others thought Betty's extreme behavior and greediness must have pushed her husband away. In either case, Betty was spinning out of control. But there was an irony at play here big time. Betty told everyone about how hard she worked and the sacrifices she had made to make Dan Broderick a success. This was very true. But once she had, she decided that even though she was not, and according to Dan, had never been very happy with her marriage, this was her only goal in life, to be Mrs. Dan Broderick. Once that was taken away, she could not let go of what she felt was the unfairness of the situation. But I can't help thinking, if she'd only put half of the energy she had into Dan Broderick towards her own life, there was nothing that could have stopped her. Her children say that they could have seen her succeeding at any number of endeavors, as a party and event planner, 
interior designer, or fundraiser, just to name a few. She had a college degree and a teaching credential, as well as a real estate license. She was far from without skills or talents. But instead of moving forward and creating a truly fulfilled and successful life of her own, she decided to pour all of her energy into hatred for her ex-husband and in seeking revenge. On November 5th, 1989, only six months after Dan and Linda's wedding, Betty drove to 1041 Cypress Avenue just after 5 a.m. She entered Dan's house using her daughter's key that she had stolen from her purse. Creeping upstairs, she stood over Dan and Linda as they slept in the master bedroom. She fired five bullets in quick succession. Two bullets hit Linda in the head and chest. The medical examiner would later report that she had died instantly when a bullet entered her brainstem. One bullet hit a wall, another pierced a nightstand. The fifth bullet hit Dan in the chest. It would be determined that Dan may have lived for another 20 minutes before drowning in his own blood as his lungs filled up with fluid. Betty would admit that he had spoken to her saying, Okay, you shot me. I'm dead, as his final words. He was found on the floor near the telephone table. Betty, afraid he was trying to get to the phone for help, yanked it out of the wall and took it with her, dropping it down the hall where he could not reach it. A little while later, Kim Broderick's phone rang in Arizona where she was attending college. It was Betty. I did it, she said. I shot the son of a bitch. Kim wasn't sure at first what she'd heard. Her mother sounded a little breathless, and the connection was garbled, but she detected a hint of, was it pride in her voice? She told Kim she was at a payphone near Dan's house, and she didn't know where to go or what to do. Kim asked her to repeat what she'd said. She then asked if her father and Linda were alive. Betty said she didn't know. She said she had gone over to talk to him, and someone made a move in the dark that startled her. She fired the gun. It had just happened all so fast, she said. She then said she had to go and hung up. Kim tried calling her father's house, but got no answer. Panicked now, she called the hospitals first and then the police. She told the dispatcher about her mother's call, the past history between her mother and father, and the fact that her mother owned a gun. She described her mother's appearance, the description of her car, and gave her father's address. She hung up and the phone soon rang again. It was her mother calling to tell her not to call the police. She then hung up. Kim called her father's house again. This time, a stranger's voice answered. Her mother had also called her boyfriend and told him what she'd done. He and a friend had gone to Dan's house to check on him. They then called the police. They were waiting for them to arrive when Kim called the second time. It was then that she found out that both her father and Linda were dead. That same day, Betty turned herself in to police. She was taken to Las Colinas Correctional Facility and booked on two charges of murder. The murder became national news. Betty granted interviews to anyone who asked while awaiting trial. She spun a tale of a wife who'd sacrificed everything to help make her husband a success. And once he had a successful law practice and became a millionaire, he divorced her and married the other woman. She said she was a victim of domestic violence, emotional abuse, and was cheated out of her home and her children by her heartless husband. She never denied killing them, but said it was an accident. She had gone over to talk to Dan Broderick, she said, and if he didn't listen, she was going to kill herself in front of him. 
She then heard Linda call out, call the police, and startled, she fired blindly, she claimed. Many people believed Betty's story and thought she was the all-too-common woman betrayed and then divorced when her husband left her for a younger woman. She gained much sympathy in the press. Her trial began on October 22, 1990. The defense laid out a case for premeditated murder. They played the tapes of Betty insulting Dan and Linda Broderick viciously. The defense argued that Betty was pushed to a nervous breakdown by Dan Broderick and snapped. Both of the Broderick's daughters took the stand, and they admitted that they'd heard their mother say she was going to kill their father many times. On October 30th, Betty herself took the stand. The trial was one of the first to be televised in its entirety on the new cable channel Court TV. Millions tuned in to hear Betty's side of the story. She was on the stand for four days. Betty told about her terrible treatment by Dan Broderick, the incredible amount of stress she was under during the divorce, and their prolonged fight afterwards over money and the children. She said Dan held all the cards and she was the victim who had been used and discarded by her ex-husband. She claimed not to remember much of the day of the shooting. She didn't remember driving to his house, she said. She did remember thinking about killing herself. When the prosecutor asked why she hadn't killed herself afterwards, she then answered, I had run out of bullets. After four days of deliberation, the jury returned. They could not agree on a verdict. Two jurors refused to believe she was guilty of premeditated murder and could not be swayed. The judge was forced to declare a hung jury. One of the holdout jurors told reporters that after hearing Betty's story, he only had one question. What took her so long? Betty Broderick remained in prison while the district attorney prepared for a retrial. A year later, her second trial began in October 1991. There was one incident in prison that was reported in the news. Betty had refused to follow a prison rule, and two guards came to move her to an isolation cell as punishment. Betty fought, kicked, and howled as she was forcibly removed from her cell. She followed up this bad press by appearing calm and serene in a 2020 interview where she said, The law has to take into account the differences between men and women in terms of their respective power. Men have all the power. That's why Dan could do to me what he did. This whole case is a story of extremes, extremes of rich to poor and all the rest. I said I represent the extremes of what can happen to women in divorce courts. The second trial closely followed the outline of the first, with most of the same witnesses on the stand. A notable exception was that the judge limited the defense's use of their domestic violence expert. The judge said that there was no credible proof that Betty was the victim of other than perhaps emotional abuse, not physical or sexual. The judge would not allow them to get very far this time with the abuse claim Betty's attorneys had argued before. There just wasn't enough to support the claim. The prosecution called Park Dietz, renowned forensic psychologist, to the stand. He told the jury that Betty Broderick was not insane, but did suffer from a couple of personality disorders, diagnosing her with both histrionic and narcissistic personality disorder. The judge was able to agree on a verdict this time, and to many it seemed like a compromise. Betty Broderick was found guilty of second-degree murder. Dan's brother Larry Broderick was angry at the verdict. What's the matter with a system that allows this woman to threaten these people dozens of times, blow them away in their sleep, and that's not murder one in this goddamn country, he told reporters. Betty Broderick received two consecutive 15 years to life sentences 
and would not be eligible for parole for 19 years. Betty Broderick was assigned prisoner number W42477 and sent to the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Her first parole hearing was held in January of 2010. Several people came to either support Betty or state their objections at her potential release, including her four children and members of Dan and Linda's families. The board found her unrepentant and stated that she had no insight into her crime. They determined she would be a continued danger to society if released and denied her parole. I was just startled. I was just startled. It wasn't, I don't even remember pulling the trigger even once. I was just startled. Miss Broderick, you went to that home with a gun. You went to that home with a loaded gun. You went to that home uninvited at 530 in the morning when most people are in bed asleep. Okay. So you can see where the commissioner, can you understand where she's coming from? She lunged at you. Excuse me. You weren't even supposed to be there. You're in there with a gun. So there was some intent to go there to do something more than just chit-chat. In January of this year, 2017, she went before the parole board for the second time. San Diego Deputy District Attorney Richard Sachs said she was defiant, smirked, and was in complete denial during her hearing. The hearing lasted most of the day, and it became clear the commissioner determined that she still had no remorse over her crime and continued to blame the victims. She was denied parole again. She will have to wait 15 years to petition the parole board again. By that time, she will be 74 years old. The children, except for Kim, who was already in college, lived at first with their aunt, the ex-wife of one of Dan Broderick's brothers. Kim Broderick finished college and moved back to San Diego, where she continues to visit her mother in prison. Betty Broderick is now being housed in the California Institute for Women in Corona. Kim has since married and has two daughters of her own. She has taken them to visit Betty. Daniel graduated high school and was accepted to UC Berkeley, where he studied business and psychology. He is now a successful businessman living in San Diego. He was married in 2011. Rhett Broderick was troubled as a teen. He lived with his big sister Kim for a time, but when she could not control his drinking and bad behavior, he was sent to a therapeutic boarding school. With a combination of therapy, rules, and structure, he was able to get his life back on track. He graduated high school as president of his class and then attended UC Berkeley like his older brother. Lee also had trouble coping with life after all she had been through. She drifted for a while, and she is now living in the San Diego area and working in restaurants. She continues to be supportive of her mother. Both Kim and Daniel appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show in 1992, and Rhett appeared on Oprah's 20th anniversary special to talk about his memories of growing up as the son of Betty and Dan Broderick. Only Lee has never spoken publicly about the murders her mother committed. Several books and movies have been made about the case, most famously a two-part made-for-TV movie titled Betty Broderick, A Woman Scorned, that aired in 1992. Meredith Baxter Burney received an Emmy nomination for her portrayal of Betty Broderick. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, 
Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. My name is Dan Broderick, B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K. I'm the son of the victims of the victims and, and Betty. It saddens me to say this, but I don't think my mother is a stable and healthy person. I don't think I don't think she has been for decades. I don't think she's remorseful, insightful to what she's done. She has never expressed wanting forgiveness from us, nor giving forgiveness to my dad and Linda. She has never apologized until today for what she's done has never acknowledged the pain and suffering for her actions. In 20 years since the incident, she hasn't done much that I'm aware of for redemption or correcting her wrongs. My name is Kim Piggins, P-I-G-G-I-N-S. I'm the oldest child of Dan and Betty Broderick. I was 19 years old when my dad and Linda died. My youngest sibling was a mere 10. It was at that moment that the four of us became orphans. Not only did my mother's actions take our father from us, but it took her away from us as well. I just always hoped that one day she would come around and realize what she had done. Yet she still not once until today has taken responsibility for her actions or expressed any remorse for the damage she's caused. She has continuously maintained that she was the victim in all this and had no choice but to act as she did. She defends her behavior to this day and makes justifications that are irrational and without factual basis. The truth of the matter is that my parents had a horrible divorce and they treated each other very poorly. But that often happens at the dissolution of a marriage. Nothing that transpired between them was grounds for murder or, frankly, any of the violent actions that my mother took towards my dad and Linda in the years prior to their deaths. I am the daughter of Dan and Betty Broderick. I have come here today in support of my mother's release. I am not trying to deny the heartbreaking loss my family has suffered through my mother's crimes. I love my father, and I want to honor his memory. My life has been very difficult trying to get by with this tragedy and the lack of my parents. My mother has been a good prisoner for the last 20 years, as all of her prison records will show. She has expressed remorse, and I feel that she should have a chance to live her older years outside of the prison walls. I'm Rhett Broderick, um, son of Baptist Pollock, B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, the son of um, Dan and Betty Broderick. Um, I, too, support my mother's release. Um, I have spent two-thirds of my life without my parents. Um, I was very young when my mom was a broken woman. She was consumed by anger and grief, and she was so depressed and just not the woman that she is today. Um, I, there's, there's no... Um, I'm very confident that my mom would succeed outside of prison. I, I think that the uh, psychological evaluation... Um, is accurate. I do not think she's a risk to society. I think she'd be a very contributing member of society, and I think that um, the longer she stays in prison, the harder that transition will be. Yeah. My name is Larry Broderick. Dan Broderick was my brother. I am saddened that I will never share again memories of a lifetime with Dan. I am deeply saddened to have lost the last 20 years with Dan and Lindy and all of our future together. I am saddened by the devastation visited on Dan's children by this woman's outrageous acts. The overwhelming emotion I feel is rage. 
I have become a bitter, angry person over the years. And in order to more fully understand what I am about to say, it is important, I believe, for you to know that I believe that the criminal sitting before you is a psychopath. I am enraged that this self-centered, lying psychopath executed Dan and Linda. I am enraged by what this murderer did to my mother and father. I am Roger Kolkina, K-O-L-K-E-N-A, brother of Linda Broderick. In my view, the most important question before the panel is, if free... Can Betty Broderick do it again? If someone were to cause her to feel enraged, or if she felt compelled to settle an old score, might Betty Broderick kill again? I don't know. The doctors don't know. No one can know. It is my heartfelt conviction that, for the safety and well-being of the Broderick family, the Colquina family, and the community, Betty Broderick should remain confined for the rest of her days. You know, your heart is still bitter. You're still angry. You're 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 showing no significant um, progress in evolving as a person past this situation. And I think what was even more overwhelming than just us talking about it was your own kids, who you talk to all the time, and they're saying, "Mom, you got to move on." You're still there. You're still back 20 years ago. 